I'm a fan of Charles Dickens' classic work, uh, A Christmas Carol. It starts out this way. Marley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it. And Scrooge's name was good upon anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come from the story I'm going to relate. I think of that because there must be no doubt that Jesus died, or nothing wonderful comes from the cross. Last week, uh, Louis Farrakhan made news by tweeting part of a speech he had given. Farrakhan is an anti-Semitic provocateur who leads what I would call a cult group, the Nation of Islam. He said this, God does not love this world. God never sent Jesus to die for this world. Jesus was never on a cross. See, Farrakhan denies the Gospel. The very reason Jesus came was because God loved this world so much. He sent the Savior, His perfect Son, to suffer and die in our place. And unless we get that right, there is no hope, there's no salvation, there's no good news. The New Testament includes four eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And we've been studying one of those accounts. That's Mark's Gospel. And over these last few months, we've uh, followed Jesus' ministry as He exploded onto the scene with miracles and powerful words and flashes of glory. But now, He has been betrayed by one of His own disciples, abandoned by His followers, all of them, falsely accused, sentenced to death, beaten, tortured, prepared for execution. And so now it seems the incredible story of Jesus is grinding to a halt here at the cross, the place of execution. What's God's plan now? Where is our hope? Well, on this Palm Sunday, what encouragement can there be from knowing that Jesus was absolutely, completely, and without question, dead? Let's follow Mark's account of Jesus' death, because without it, nothing wonderful can come from this story. Last week we stopped in Mark chapter 15, verse 20, as Jesus was led away to crucifixion. And it was customary for the condemned man to carry the cross piece, that is that, that one bar of the cross called the patibulum, and it weighed at least 40 pounds or more, and that's not a great deal of weight, but Jesus' shoulders were already bleeding and lacerated. He was so weakened by the extreme flogging we talked about last week that he could not carry this crossbeam. And so uh, the soldiers took a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, Cyrene, and forced him to pick up this cross piece and carry it to the place of execution so Jesus could be nailed to that entire cross. Simon himself was likely a Jew who was in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Mark, in verse 21, identifies him as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Uh, that indicates that uh, these men were known by Mark's first readers, uh, likely became church leaders, these men. Uh, but here's where the story continues, verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. 
Now, that word Golgotha, we're not as familiar with that as we are Calvary. We uh, frequently refer uh, in songs and readings to Calvary as the place of Jesus' death. But Matthew and Mark and John all use the word Golgotha. Uh, Where is that from? Well, it's from the Aramaic language. We're dealing with three different languages here in the New Testament, uh, and and, uh, Aramaic is one of them, and it's Aramaic for skull. Where did the word Calvary come from? Well, that's the Latin word for skull, Calvaria. Uh, And so that's one we're more familiar with, but Golgotha is the place of his death. And evidently, it was a hill that seemed to resemble a skull. That's why it got its name. It was a well-known spot in Jesus' day, located just outside the walls of Jerusalem. Now, once on top of the hill, Jesus was offered wine and myrrh. Why was that? Well, it was to deaden the pain. Uh, to prolong his life in a sense. It was, uh, myrrh was an anesthetic and Jesus refused it. Why? He chose to fully experience the agony of bearing our sin and dying in our place. He will not sleep on the cross. Cicero, ages ago, described crucifixion as the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible. And all of the Gospels that speak of it leave out any graphic detail. Mark gives virtually no description. Notice what he says, verse 24. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Now, we we have popular pictures of the crucifixion in our mind, and and they're not all very accurate in many details. Uh, This one, for example, as typical, pictures the cross as very tall, where in reality it was probably uh, about seven feet tall. A block of wood would be halfway up the cross to give just a little bit of support to the body to delay the inevitable death. And although I will not go into great detail, I do want to alert you and to remind you as to how death by crucifixion occurred. While modern executions aim to minimize suffering, crucifixion was about maximizing suffering. So one nail was put through each wrist, And then with the feet pressed together and the knees slightly bent, one nail was uh, driven through the Achilles tendon, inside the Achilles tendon. So the body would hang from these three nails. And as it sagged, uh, air would be, could not be expelled through the lungs. So imagine the excruciating pain of, of trying to push your impaled body up to gasp for breath. That was what the crucified went through. Physician Truman Davis says the result was hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, the compressed heart struggling to pump, tortured lungs making a frantic effort to gasp, the chill of death creeping through the tissues. That was what Jesus experienced, and Mark sums it up by just saying, and they crucified him. In verse 26, the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. It was common for the condemned to have his crime written on a board and fastened above his head. And this claim to be king was his crime. It was considered high treason against the Roman government. Now, just to explain, you may see uh, the letters I-N-R-I in various places, and you might wonder what they stand for. You might know. I'm always trying to figure it out in the Greek language, which is wrong. It's not in Greek. These are the first letters of the phrase in Latin, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's the crime he was held for. 
Verse 27, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now the word robber here, the Greek language the New Testament was written in, is lastis. And it usually refers to a thief, someone who steals. But here it is best understood as rebel. Because stealing was not a capital offense, punishable by death. Uh, And so these men were likely part of the same insurrection that Barabbas was involved in, that we saw last time. And and putting Jesus in the middle between them was calling him the rebel ringleader. So hanging there in display, in public view, dehumanized in an agony, Jesus was ridiculed. They ridiculed him with words that they misinterpreted. When Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days he was referring to his own body that's John 2 verse 19 and 20 and so they accused him of threatening to tear down the temple building and rebuild it and they mocked him for this and yet what Jesus actually meant was happening at that very moment that very moment they were destroying his body and in three days it would raise from the grave and the general public weren't the only ones ridiculing him Verse 31, so also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him one to another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So they taunted him to save himself, but in order to save others, Jesus had to sacrifice his own life. That's why he came. They demanded that he show his power. They insulted his ability. They showed contempt for his words. They heaped insult after insult upon him. See, Jesus didn't peacefully, painlessly pass away. It was not a dignified, quiet ending. It was brutal, shameful, wretched. He was stripped naked, ridiculed, tortured. There was spit and blood and the stench of death. Jesus endured agony and abuse because there was a greater plan at work. And let me just remind you that You and I must keep that in perspective in our lives day in and day out. I mean, how easily you and I can begin to doubt God and and question, where's his plan? What's he doing? Uh, When when there's pain in our lives, when there's tragedy, when there's loss, when there's uncertainty, we want, why doesn't God do something? Uh, What's he about? Uh, Why is he silent? Where is he? And so even those who believe can begin to doubt God's promise and his power when your prayer doesn't get answered when you want or how you want you feel anger bitterness disappointment defeat hopelessness you say I've been worshiping God with my whole heart and my husband left anyway I've been serving Jesus faithfully using my gifts and now I've lost my job I've believed and believed and believed and and now I'm battling cancer. I've given of my resources to the Lord and my kids rebelled. I've been obedient to God and and yet my dad doesn't want anything to do with me. I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and, and my relationship still blew up and fell apart. So it's tempting in our quest for a quick and immediate solution and satisfaction to begin to doubt God's care the reality is the proof that God cares about your misery and suffering is that he took it upon himself 
God does care what you're going through. And it's so easy for us to become sarcastic about God's ability to save. And to look, We need to look at the cross and remember it was love that held him there. And the proof that he cares about your misery is there on the cross. We must see it. We must remember it. Christ went through it all to accomplish the Father's greater purpose. And whatever you see in your world that causes doubt or fear, understand that Jesus is victor. Though things in your life may not make sense, remember that despite His agonizing execution, the King of kings and Lord of lords was not defeated. He did not save Himself. He could have. He did not save Himself so that He could save others. Mark continues, verse 33, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the darkness was extraordinary. The light went out from noon until three. Why this darkness? It was God's sign that something supernatural was happening. This was not just one more Roman execution. This just wasn't a tragedy. Uh, Darkness represented the fact that God's judgment was falling. Where was it falling? On Jesus. It was falling on Jesus. The Father abandoned His only Son and poured out judgment, punishment upon Him. Uh, I have a skin tone color that I think um, tans pretty easily. Uh, people accuse me, you've been out golfing all day, haven't you? No, I've worked in the yard for an hour, and I, I look good. And, and, and so, and that's been true in my life. I, I very rarely have been sunburned. I get a nice, nice looking glow, and it doesn't take much time at all. Um, years ago, when we were living in Canada, in the middle of a Canadian winter, and those are lovely, um, some friends, we went with some friends to Mexico, to, to the beach, and, uh, yeah, I don't need suntan lotion. That's for babies. That's for sissies. So I didn't wear any. I was out in the sun, blazing sun, on the beach all day. And that night I did not feel good. In fact, the next morning I could barely move. I was nauseous. I was ill. I, I was uh, in bad, bad shape. And my skin was used to some sun. Just a stupid adult doing stupid things. Imagine, though, a newborn baby whose skin had never been touched by the sun, left out and exposed the same way I was. That would be deadly. That would be deadly. So I want you to imagine this Jesus who had never sinned, bearing the weight of all our sin. Had it heaped upon Him as 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might be the righteousness of God. So Jesus took our sin on Himself. The lies, the greed, the lust, the the rage, the fear, the rebellion, the hatred, the murder. He bore all of it. The failure of millions and millions and millions of believers through the ages fell on the perfect Jesus. My sin, my guilt, my shame, my weakness, my failure. And there in that darkness as He hung from the tree, He carried it all and God poured out punishment. God struck His only Son with all the wrath and the 
punishment that should fall on me and you. Jesus suffered the execution I deserve. And as a result, verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. He cried out a yell. It's a shriek. It's hard to imagine there would be strength enough left, but he screamed, why have you abandoned me? In his book, The Reason for God, which was a New York Times bestseller years ago and is still worth reading if you have not read it, Tim Keller writes, there may be no greater inner agony than the loss of a relationship we desperately want. So if someone you barely know criticizes you, rejects you, it hurts. If someone you're dating dumps you, that's more painful. But if your spouse abandons you, or when you're still a child, a parent rejects you, the psychological damage is infinitely worse. They're saying the closer the relationship, the greater the pain. And that's the pain Jesus was feeling. That's what he experienced. God the Father cannot look upon sin. And now his own precious son, with whom he has been together from before the foundation of the world, throughout eternity, all together, his own son is covered with sin, drowning in sin, buried in sin. And Jesus felt that rejection, the turning away, the abandonment of his father. And it was shocking, and it's beyond our comprehension. Verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Here we have in the midst of this great drama, the spellbinding account is an innocuous statement about ripped drapery. But see, this is key to understanding the point of his awful death. That curtain hung in the temple. It it separated the holy place from the most holy place. Uh, It was five layers of fine-twined linen in blue and purple and scarlet. It was up to four inches thick. It was a barrier to this unapproachable space. The most holy place was one room, 30 by 30, and it was only entered one time a year, and that only by the high priest of Israel. No one else was permitted. No other eyes viewed it. No other feet felt the floor. No voice broke the stillness. This thick curtain obstructed the entrance, obscured light, muffled sound, but when Jesus died, it was ripped in two, not naturally, but from top to bottom. And what was inaccessible was now accessible. What was guarded and closed and separate was now wide open. And so what truth should we grasp? This is the sentence that I I want you to have in mind from our study today. And it is this, God turned his back on Jesus to open the way for us. That's what happened. Jesus died and the curtain was ripped open because he bore the horror and death of, of sin Jesus opened the way for sinful people to be acceptable to a holy God. So we don't need priests to represent us. There's no secret place we aren't worthy to enter. No one is too messed up to be denied access. Through Jesus, everyone who turns from sin to Christ can approach God, is accepted to God. Not based on your righteousness, but the righteousness of God in Christ. Jesus tore open the way. Most of us are familiar with The Wizard of Oz. There we meet Dorothy and the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, the Lion. Entering the Palace of Oz, they walk down this long hallway in search of the great wizard, and when they reach his chamber, there's this thick red smoke and fire that obscures the huge holographic face of the wizard, and his fearsome, threatening voice bellows out, Silence! And the lion is so terrified he just passes out. The wizard sends them off on a quest 
for the wicked witch of the West and her broom, but when they return with the broomstick, the wizard says, go away and come back tomorrow. Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. And as he threatens them, Dorothy's little dog Toto pulls back the curtain, revealing the great Oz is just a little white-haired man who had no real power to give them what they need. Hear me. Everything in your world wants you to think of God like that. Every doubt, every fear, every lie, every sin, every failure, every bad circumstance, every negative thing whispers to you that behind the curtain is just some tired, old, powerless God who can't really help you. But Jesus' death showed the truth. When the curtain was torn in two, the mighty God, maker of heaven and earth, was revealed. Jesus opened up complete access to the Father of eternity, and all who believe can come to God and be accepted. And Mark highlights that by immediately telling us about a centurion. Verse 39, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed at last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So we have a, a, a commander who has seen many, many die. He supervised executions. He was familiar with the reactions of, of those who suffered. But something about Jesus was incredibly different. And it inspired awe. This was no ordinary man, no ordinary death. God's own son was nailed to a tree. I remember Mark started his gospel with these words, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the first person to figure that out is not a disciple. It's an officer who carried out his execution. Now by now it's late afternoon and something had to be done with Jesus' body before sundown. Jesus' mother was in no condition to do anything. His disciples were hiding. Only the women had not run off. Verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him. So this faithful group watched and witnessed the end of Jesus' life. They were the last to see Jesus in his death. They will also be the first to see him come alive. Now, neither of these Marys are the mother of Jesus. Mary was a very common name, as was Joseph and others. But the fact that women are mentioned among the witnesses of his death and resurrection supports the historicity of this event. Because if you're making up something in the ancient world, you were not going to use someone who was considered not, uh, 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 whose testimony was of no legal value. That's what women were in that day and age. See how far we've come? And so if you're making it up, you're not going to use women as the first witnesses to the resurrection or to his death. Then this. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And we learned from the centurion that he was dead. He granted the corpse to Joseph. So this guy Joseph of Arimathea stepped forward to claim the body. And this was a bold act because it would identify him with Jesus. Here he is a prominent Jewish leader. Uh, this would have serious consequences for Joseph, but he did it anyway. Normally a family member or a very close friend would deal with the corpse of the executed. 
But Mary was apparently too grief-stricken. The male disciples are all hiding. And so Joseph stepped forward. Otherwise, here's what would have happened. Jesus would have been left to rot on the cross, his flesh eaten by vultures, and eventually his corpse tossed into a common grave. And since crucifixion was intended to be slow and painful, Jesus' death was surprisingly quick, and so Pilate wanted verification. Who does he speak to but, but the centurion? And says, yes, no question, he is dead. Jesus wasn't unconscious and later revived in the tomb. He was absolutely dead, verified by a Roman officer. New Testament scholar Ben Witherington says, writes this, that Muslims insist that it was Judas on the cross because God would never do that to Jesus. But see, the historical record says differently. It says that Jesus was confirmed dead by a Gentile Roman officer. And here's this, verse 46, And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So after his death was certified, Jesus was removed from the cross, wrapped for burial, sealed in a tomb by this prominent Jewish leader. John's Gospel tells us that Nicodemus helped Joseph take Jesus down from the cross and bury him. And the scene ends with these women watching the tomb. The point of all this is that because of Jesus, there's access to God. It's possible for the weak and the powerful, for Jew and Gentile, for male and female, for deserting disciples and tough warriors, for fearful fishermen and faithful women to be redeemed. Because God turned His back on Jesus to open the way for us. I used to work in a cemetery. So I've spent a lot of time in cemeteries. And then as a pastor, a lot of time in doing funerals and then visiting my own relatives in cemeteries. And I've seen some strange things in cemeteries that people do and leave behind. And, and especially in the last 10 or 15 years, I've, I've seen very odd things. I mean, the, the, certainly the, somebody who has a, a beer party with their old buddy and, and leaves the empties around the, the graveside in a full can on the, the tombstone for their buddy to drink or whatever. But what is heartbreaking is how many times I've seen notes and letters tacked to that gravestone for all to see that express rage or bitterness. Uh, Things like, why did you do that to me? How could you leave me? How can I live without you? I'm lost. Life isn't worth living. Heartbreaking. Sad. And I would tell you that too many Christians live that way. Hanging around remembering a dead Jesus. Bitter over their dead lives. Regretting their dead dreams. Angry about their deadly circumstances. But that fails to appreciate what really happened. Now, Here's how the New Testament tells us what effect this should have. I I want us to read aloud these words from Hebrews 10. And I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read them together. You stand with me and let's read Hebrews 10, 19-20 together. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us 
through the curtain. That is His body. You realize what great words these are? If your trust is in Jesus, you should live with incredible assurance and boundless courage. This agonizing, bloody death scene where God turns His back on His beloved Son opened a new way for you and for me. And all of us who have abandoned our hope in trying to save ourselves, and all who have put our hope in Christ alone, we can boldly approach the Almighty God, the Creator of the universe. Through Jesus, we come to God knowing He loves us, confident He accepts us, certain He hears our cries for help, assured that He has forgiven us, secure in the knowledge that we belong to Him forever and ever. But these blessings came at an enormous price. The suffering and execution of God the Son. Without question, Jesus died. If not, then there is no resurrection and nothing wonderful can come from this story. But because He died, God the Father opened His arms to you and to me. I'm forgiven because He was forsaken. Amazing love! How can it be that you, my King, would die for me? Thanks be to God.